Hello and welcome to What's the Story Ghost? I'm your host Annette. And I'm Stephen. And today we are on episode 27. Stephen. Nah. What can you tell me about Amelia Earhart? It's the first one to cross the Atlantic Ocean. That's it, that's the whole podcast done then. Oh, it's, it's, it's aviation related. It's a jingle. Okay, so we're going to discuss her history today and go through conspiracy theories. Do it, make it so. So I'm on Google Maps for the Sally House episode last week, and I see that Amelia Earhart, someone I've admired since I was a little one, was born and raised in Atchison, Kansas. Being the Trekkie that I am, I immediately thought of the episode of Star Trek Voyager, where the crew discovers several people who were abducted in 1937, including Amelia Earhart, cryogenically frozen on a distant planet. And I got to thinking, yeah, Voyager is fiction, but where'd she go? And her navigator, Fred Noonan, what happened to him? There has been huge speculation on what happened to Earhart and Noonan. Most historians hold the simple crash and sink theory, but many other possibilities have been proposed, including several conspiracy theories. But how could we begin to discuss the odd circumstances surrounding her disappearance without first nosediving into her history? Amelia Earhart was born July 24, 1897, to Edwin Earhart and Amy Otis in Atchison, Kansas. Amelia's grandfather, Alfred Otis, was a former federal judge, the president of the Atchison Savings Bank, and a leading citizen in the town. So needless to say, her mother came from an affluent family, and her father was a railroad lawyer for Rock Island Railroad. Two years after Amelia came Grace. The girls were close but like chalk and cheese, Amelia being referred to as the ringleader and Grace acting as a dutiful follower. Their mother Amy did not believe in raising her daughters to be nice little girls. They wore bloomers, which Amelia loved because they gave her the freedom of movement, which is needed when you spend most of your childhood climbing trees, hunting rats with a rifle, and belly slamming your sledge downhill with your sister. They were not your average girly girls. Amelia's first flight was long before she ever set foot on a plane. She built a ramp, modelled after a roller coaster she'd seen at a fair, and with the help of her uncle, they secured it to the top of the family tool shed. She emerged from the wreckage with a bruised lip, torn dress, and a sensation of exhilaration. She exclaimed, Oh, Pidge, it's just like flying! Pidge being her little sister's nickname. At the age of 10, Amelia saw her first aircraft at the Iowa State Fair. Her father tried to persuade her to take a flight, but Amelia took one look at the plane and asked could she go back to the merry-go-round, later describing the biplane as a thing of rusty wire and wood and not interesting at all. In 1914, struggling with alcoholism, Edwin Amelia's father was forced to retire, and even though he attempted to rehabilitate himself through treatment, he was never reinstated at Rock Island Railroad. At this time, Amelia's maternal grandmother died suddenly. The Otis house was auctioned along with all of its contents, and Amelia was heartbroken. She later described it as the end of her childhood. In 1915, after a long search, Amelia's father found work as a clerk at St. Paul, Minnesota. Fearing another disastrous move, Amelia's mum took the girls to Chicago where they lived with friends. While in Chicago, Amelia rejected the high school closest to the home, suggesting the chemistry lab was just like a kitchen sink. She eventually enrolled in Hyde Park High School where she graduated in 1916. 
Her time there was summarised in one sentence when someone signed her yearbook, quote, A.E., the girl in brown who walks alone. Growing up, she was always committed to finding a career. She collected newspaper clippings about female success in male-dominated fields such as film direction, law, advertising, management and engineering. In 1917, during Christmas vacation, Amelia visited her sister in Toronto. It was here that she began to see the wounded soldiers returning from the front during World War I, so she received training from the Red Cross and became a nurse. As part of her duties, Amelia prepared food for patients with special diets and handed out prescribed medications in the hospital dispensary. This is where she would hear stories from military pilots further developing her interest in flying. When the Spanish flu hit Toronto, Amelia, engaged in demanding nursing duties, became a patient herself. The illness left her with lifelong sinus problems which sometimes impaired her flying. Not one to lay around, Amelia took advantage of the time recovering by studying mechanics and learning to play the banjo. Later that year, Amelia and a young friend visited an airfare during the Canadian National Exhibition. One of the highlights of the day was a flying demonstration by a World War I flying ace. The pilot overhead spotted Amelia and her friend who were watching from an isolated clearing. I'm sure he said to himself, Watch me make them scamper, she said, and he dove at them. But Amelia stood her ground as the aircraft came close. I did not understand it at the time, she said, but I believe that little red airplane said something to me as it swished by. On December 28, 1920, Amelia and her father attended an aerial meet at Doherty Field in Long Beach, California. She asked her father to ask about passenger flights and flying lessons. She was booked in for a lesson the very next day. The cost was a whopping $10 for 10 minutes, about $150 today, with Frank Cox. By the time I got two, 300 feet off the ground, she said, I knew I had to fly. The next month, Amelia recruited Netta Snook to be her flying instructor. The initial contract was $500 for 12 hours of instruction. To save, Amelia did a variety of different jobs, including photographer, stenographer at a local telephone company, and a truck driver. Against her better judgment, Amelia's mum helped her hit her goal of $1,000. In the summer of 1921, Amelia purchased a second-hand bright yellow Kinner Airster biplane and nicknamed it the Canary. After her first successful solo landing, she bought herself a new leather jacket, but due to the brand newness of the jacket, she was of course teased. Did she stop wearing it? No, she aged her coat by sleeping in it and staining it with aircraft oil. On October 22, 1922, Amelia flew the Canary to an altitude of 14,000 feet, setting a world record for female pilots. On May 16, 1923, Amelia became the 16th woman in the United States to be issued a pilot's license. The early 1900s was a busy time for female aviation, keeping in mind the Wright Brothers flight was only in 1903. I think it was just so new to everyone that it wasn't yet thought of as an only male role. Honourable mention to Catherine Wright because, evidently, the Wright brothers and their Wright sister was too long a sentence to say, I guess. She may not have been on the Wright flyer when it took flight, but she helped with flight operations, writing, communications and iterated ideas with her brothers. She was a lot more involved than people might think. 
On August 1, 1911, Harriet Quimby became the first female pilot to receive her license in the United States. Bessie Coleman was the first African-American woman to earn her pilot's license in 1921, but she had to go to France to earn her license because every aviation school in the United States denied her entry. But I digress. The 20s, however, were not so easy on Amelia. Her health declined, but she finally underwent a successful sinus procedure after many failed procedures, including one that same year. Her parents divorced in 1924, and then she was unable to continue her studies at Columbia as her mother could no longer afford tuition fees and associated costs. So she found work first as a teacher and then as a social worker while living in Massachusetts. But she maintained her interest in aviation, becoming a member of the American Aeronautical Society's Boston chapter and was eventually elected vice president. She also helped finance the operation of Denison Airport by investing a small sum and worked as a sales rep for Kinner Aircraft in the Boston area. Mia also wrote local newspaper columns promoting flying and as her local celebrity grew, she laid out the plans for an organisation devoted to female flyers. Following Charles Lindbergh's solo crossing of the Atlantic in 1927, Amy Guest expressed interest in being the first woman to fly the Atlantic. However, after considering the adventure to be a very perilous task, Guest decided to sponsor the project instead, suggesting that another girl with the right image be found. Amelia got that call in April 1928 from Lieutenant Hilton H. Rayleigh asking her, would you like to fly the Atlantic? The project coordinators, including book publisher and publicist George P. Putnam, interviewed Amelia and asked her to accompany pilot William Stoltz and co-pilot slash mechanic Louis Gordon on the flight as a passenger, but with the added duty of keeping the flight log. The team departed from Newfoundland in a Fokker named Friendship on June 17, 1928, landing in South Wales exactly 20 hours and 40 minutes later. Amelia didn't pilot the aircraft since most of the flight was on instruments and she had no training for that type of flight. When interviewed after landing, she said, Stoltz did all the flying. Had to. I was just baggage, like a sack of potatoes, she added. But maybe someday I'll try it alone. When the team returned to the US on July 6th, they were greeted with a ticker tape parade along the Canyon of Heroes in Manhattan, followed by a reception of President Calvin Coolidge at the White House. Amelia was nicknamed Queen of the Air by the United Press. From there, celebrity endorsements helped her finance her flying. Although she had gained fame from her transatlantic flight, she endeavoured to set an untarnished record of her own. In August 1928, Amelia became the first to fly solo across the North Atlantic continent and back. On April 9, 1931, Amelia set the world altitude record of 18,415 feet flying in an autogyro. Around this time, Amelia became involved with the 99s, an organisation of female pilots dedicated to providing moral support to female pilots in advancing the cause of women in aviation. She later became the organisation's first president in 1930. Amelia and publisher George Putnam grew very close over time and naturally married on February 7, 1931 in Connecticut. But staying ever independent and changing her ways for no one, she referred to her marriage as a partnership with dual control. In a letter written and hand-delivered to Putnam on the day of the wedding, Amelia wrote, I want you to understand, I shall not hold you to any medieval code of faithfulness to me, nor shall I consider myself bound to you similarly. She continued, 
I may have to keep some place where I can go to be by myself now and then, for I cannot guarantee to endure at all times the confinement of even an attractive cage. Amelia completed her 15-hour journey five years to the day after Charles Lambert's crossing and became the first female aviator to fly solo and non-stop across the Atlantic Ocean. I mean, she intended to fly to Paris and wound up in Northern Ireland, but she contended with strong northerly winds, icy conditions and mechanical problems, so the fact that she landed was a victory in itself. In 1934, Amelia continued to show just how vigorous an advocate she was for female pilots, when she openly refused to fly screen actress Mary Pickford to Cleveland for the 1934 Bendix Trophy race because they banned women. In early 1936, Amelia started planning a round-the-world flight. Others had flown around the world, but her flight would be the longest at 47,000 kilometres because it followed a roughly equatorial route. In 1937, Amelia set out to fly around the world in a twin-engine Lockheed Electra, built to her specifications, which included extensive modifications to the main body of the plane to incorporate many additional fuel tanks. On March 17, 1937, Amelia flew the first leg from Auckland, California to Honolulu, with her crew consisting of Harry Manning as navigator, Noonan as second navigator, and stump pilot Paul Mance, hired originally by Amelia to help improve her flying, but now acting as her technical advisor. So many things went wrong mechanically, and ultimately the Electra wound up in the United States Navy's Luke Field on Ford Island in Pearl Harbor. Three days later, the flight was to resume, but during the takeoff run, there was an uncontrolled ground loop. The forward landing gear collapsed, both propellers hit the ground, the plane skidded on its belly, and a portion of the runway was damaged. The cause of the ground loop caused a lot of controversies. Some said they saw the tyre blow. Amelia thought either Electra's right tyre had blown and or the landing gear had collapsed. And some sources, including Mance, cited pilot error. The flight was called off and Electra was shipped to the Lockheed Burbank facility for repairs. Manning ended his association with the trip because he had taken a leave of absence to be there, though some sources said he had lost faith in the pilot leaving Amelia with only Noonan as a navigator, neither of whom was a skilled radio operator. The second attempt began when Amelia arrived in Miami and publicly announced her plans to circumnavigate the globe. Amelia and Fred set off on June 1st, beginning their 47,000 kilometre journey, starting from Miami and flying east. Over the following weeks, they made various refuelling stops before reaching Leigh, New Guinea on June 29th. At that point, Amelia and Fred had travelled some 35,000 kilometres. The remaining 11,000 kilometres would be over the Pacific. On July 2nd, 1937, at 10am, Amelia and Frank took off from Leigh Airfield with a destination of Howland Island in the Pacific, a tiny piece of land 3,540 kilometres away. The flight was expected to be difficult. Special navigation procedures were put in place. To help with this, two brightly lit US ships were stationed to mark the route. Radio contact was to be made with the US Coast Guard ship Itasca off Howland Island. But through a series of misunderstandings or errors, the final approach to Howland Island using radio navigation was not successful. Using an RDF, directional finding equipment, Amelia should have been able to navigate in. But after taking off from Leigh, they encountered problems with 
overcast skies and rain. Some fear the loop antenna may have been damaged. Nearing Howland Island, which can I just say it's about 2.2 kilometers long and it's about 0.89 kilometers wide. So this was never going to be easy. But when they got closer to the island, the communications were confusing and sporadic and for several reasons, it was not sufficient to determine direction. The last communication from Amelia was at 8.43 a.m. We are running north and south. The Itzka began a rescue attempt after she failed to land at Howland, but found nothing. On January 5th, 1939, Amelia was declared dead. No trace of the world's most famous female pilot, her navigator, or her plane has ever been found. And everyone and their mother has a theory on what happened. Now, normally I would end the episode with a quippy remark or a little paragraph on spooky things, but I'll end this episode with the letter Amelia sent to her husband, only to be opened in the event of her death. It said, Please know, I am quite aware of the hazards. I want to do it because I want to do it. The women must try to do things as men have tried. And when they fail, their failure must be but a challenge to others. What do you think of that, Ed? That was interesting. Yeah? Yeah. I didn't know half the um, I didn't know half of the history behind it. It was a lot more history than we normally do in an episode. However, she was a mad feminist and a, bit, and a bit of a badass. But we'll get to. I'm kind of raging now, though. If anyone ever just listens to the story part and then is like, "Oh, I'm not listening to those two waffle on," you're gonna miss all the best parts because I have not one, not two, but five theories on what happened to this woman. I actually have a sixth. I'll leave mine to last. You can probably guess what it is. Hit me with the series. (laughs) So the first theory is that they ran out of gas and crashed. Now, let's be honest, the plane has never been found. So if they did run out of gas and crashed anywhere, it would more than likely be in the ocean because no wreckage has been found. Now, if you've ever looked at any... There's not a lot of area to search in. (laughs) What's the name of the race? Howland? Have you ever seen any of these islands? Probably so not. that's Papua New Guinea. I know you know where that is because you've been to New Zealand. So this is Papua New Guinea. Yeah. This is where she was supposed to go. Oh, that, I can't even see. I know, I know. This is what she was expecting to land on. Now, I don't know if the Japanese own it, but they blew it up. So there's no runway on it now. That's what she was supposed to land on to refuel and then go from there to here. Could have been Hawaii. I'm not sure. years at home and it has just twirled the globe. <laughs> Okay, so that's what she was supposed to do. Dun, dun, dun. The first theory is that she ran out of gas. The problem with the plane and the distance she was trying to cover is she had literally just about enough to get her where she was going. And if she had any sort of additional headwind that she wasn't anticipating. Exactly, because at one stage she was said to have been at a... 7,000 feet and she was hitting this speed and da 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 and then the next transmission was she had climbed an extra 3,000 feet and she was at 10,000 and they were like what's she doing this makes no sense but there was adverse weather conditions that they hadn't anticipated and you know yourself if you get any kind of drag you're going to use more energy more fuel more everything even Mm -hmm. when you're hand gliding if you hit any kind of wind in front of you Actually, when you're hang gliding, it's probably better if the wind is coming at you, is it? Depends on where you are. But yeah. What you're trying to do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so essentially, if she didn't make it, she was she's somewhere in here. Now, the second theory, Marshall Island is another place that she may have potentially gone to. So if she didn't think she was going to get to here, she might have veered off course. But you know as much as I do, all you have to do is get a couple of degrees off. And then instead of going here, you could be over here 
but you just continue going the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. The risk she was running there, I think it was owned by the Japanese at the time. Right. So she may have been able to stop and refuel, but that is actually one of the theories that she was captured by the Japanese. So that's essentially what she could have done. She could to Marshall Island and then continued on because she would have had to refuel anyway. Yeah. And then there's this one. <laughs> I'm thinking if she could have said to herself, I'm not going to make it. I'm going to go up here. That's a little bit more, but that's approximately the same distance. So I'm showing Stephen here off the coast of Fiji. Now, it could be wrong, right? But just it looks very similar to what I would imagine. Uh, actually, it does look very similar to the plane. Um Tell me if you see anything there, Stephen. I see a dot. It's a little plane there. Now, the only thing that throws me is if you look at the size of it versus the buildings, her plane wasn't that big. So I got real excited thinking, oh, I found something. I didn't find it. I found it on YouTube short. Surely somebody would have sat out and had a look at that. Yeah, you would think. Like but found- that's what I'm saying. Because of the size of it, I'm wondering, is the satellite picking a flight or a plane that's in the air? But then I'm looking at how old that plane is. Ah, uh, no, that could easily be satellite. I know, right? I know, yeah, I know. Yeah. Okay, so, second theory, or third theory, third as I'm saying it, second as I'm reading it, is that she wound up on Gardner Island, um, and she was eaten by crabs. Would you like to see the size of these crabs? Are they the coconut crabs? <laughs> They're big old crabs. Stephen, that's a dustbin. Yeah. No, that there big crabs. You so you can't see what we're looking at, but if you actually just Google coconut crabs, one of the expressions here is they're actually supersized versions of the cute and cuddly hermit crabs because they're the same. Um, the hermit crabs have really different pincers as to yeah. what normal crabs would have. Is that like the big crab in Moan? Moan, Yeah, so I'm kind of hoping that maybe she crash landed. Uh, somehow managed to You're get to. That she yeah, and I'm, eaten no, I'm hoping that the girl was not alive when these things start gnawing on her leg. I did go straight to the eyes. Next theory: she was in cahoots with the U.S. government and was a spy, and she actually ended up landing on Marshall Island and was captured by the Japanese. That is a legit theory. Next one: aliens. Yeah, they're all it's always aliens. <laughs> Don't get me wrong; it's not like they didn't do massive, massive searches. I mean, for shy of two years oh, maybe not even two years maybe about 18 19 months the government did their own searches and then her husband who in his own right he had a lot of money himself he was a publisher and a publicist yeah he was minted he financed tons of searches himself and short to come in the ocean there's no real way that they're going to know for sure whether they did or didn't find her there's some pictures that circulated there was one that people were absolutely now even when i'm looking at it i genuinely thought oh my god that's them but it was a, a tourist blogger, basically, of the time. But it was in 1935. So it couldn't have been them. And wow. um, there's also been pictures that have been taken from the people who were doing the initial search of um, what looked like an island in the background, one of the islands, and an upside down plane with the landing gear sticking up. Now, the landing gear on her on her plane did not retract. So they thought that could have been it, but nothing came of that. And then on the island with the crabs, there was actually a body found they initially thought that it was a, say, a young man, and then they thought, okay, it could actually still be the same posture as a woman. And all these tests that couldn't be done, that could be done today, can't be done because they lost the bones. Someone said, whoever it was that was doing the testing on the bones just said, well, I, I can't give you a definitive yes or no, or he or she, or can't even age these bones, and then just discarded them, and they, they're gone. Well, it's, you know, it's, it's, you should have been able to see into the future. <laughs> How very dare he. 
personally, I think, now I'm going to go on a feminist rant here. No, I'm not really. I'm just going to give you my point and that's going to be it. It's either aliens or somebody didn't like the positive effect that she was having. So her husband, his ex-wife was a massive advocate for the suffragettes. Uh, her mum, Amy, was the same as well. Um, they were all part of this big feminine movement. And I think because aviation, like I said, was so new, it wasn't really a predominantly male thing yet. And then they kind of thought, oh, God, if she's starting to make moves in things like aviation and engineering, how do we know she's not going to make bigger moves? And I wonder, did somebody maybe loosen a nut in the airplane? Easily done. Easily done. She's about to cross over the vastest expanse in the world. Her plane wasn't set out to like specific fixtures and fittings. Like nobody could go over with a fine tooth comb and go, this is exactly as it should be because nothing in her plane was the way it was supposed to be. All these modifications have been made so that she could carry more fuel. So I think maybe somebody just thought, get rid of her. Cheerio. That's my theory. Goodbye now. That is my theory. I don't think I have any other theories. I feel like I wrote a lot more today than what I'd normally write. Well, when you're flicking five pages at a time, trying to find a way. (laughs) I'm I'm assuming that you wrote a few notes there, all right. Do you have any possible contenders for your segment? Oh, uh, well, I did want to say Hilary Swank, but it turns out that in 2010, she played Amelia Earhart (laughs) in a film called Amelia. Oh, okay, so she's already done... She's, she's not going to do the role twice. Yeah, no. so let's say Max from Stranger Things. You see, this isn't fair. I don't know who that is. Feisty Redhead. She probably has. I don't even know who she is. And once you say Feisty Redhead, I'm like, yeah, that could work. She <laughs> Redhead is. I don't know. She's very, uh, she's very headstrong anyway. To fit in with the rest of the female aviators, cut her hair quite short, like pixie cut short. Mm-hmm. So does that help you maybe pick out a female? I'm still with Max. Max is going to cut her hair. I don't, I don't know if you can actually do that. Max will want to cut her hair. Okay, so let's go with Max. Anybody else? Uh, well, I've already picked Judy. No, sorry, that's another name scribbled down there. Uh, <laughs> no, Max Max for, I think he said Max for Hilly Swank. Max for Amelia. Judy Leiden was a name I'd scribble down there. Just when you're talking about female aviators, the book from the paragliding angloid woman I have is Judy Leiden. The sign book. I have placed a book in front of Annette. Oh, she's pretty. Yeah. Oh, do you know what she could? Yeah, she she's, could. She's some serious uh, paragliding and hanggliding world records. She's a Guinness she... World Record. She was. She's some altitude drop records, which is where she hung from the bottom of a balloon. The balloon went up, and she released and drop. Um, Forty-one thousand. Yeah, that's pretty high. Oh, that's yeah. nauseating. And that's that's. There's no engine on the hanglider she dropped with. She also crossed from Ireland to England mm. in a hang glider. That has no engine on it. And do you know why she could do it? Thanks, Judy, if you're out there. <laughs> I think she could do it, and I'll tell you why. Amelia wasn't able to do anything during the uh, friendship flight because it was all instrumental flying, Yes. whereas she was more raw and... Fly by wire. So I think if somebody can do what Judy Ledden can do... And, and do it all raw with no engine and no anything else, then yeah, she could totally play the part. In fact, I actually like her more than I like that other person who I don't know who they are. Hilary's Frank? Yeah. No, I know who Hilary's Frank is. Oh, Max. Yeah. <laughs> who will play um, Kathy Bates? Kathy will play Kathy Bates. 
What character will Kathy Bates yeah, play? I set it upside down. Yeah. <laughs> I set it backwards. That's Stranger Things. Oh. The upside down in Stranger Things. There you go now. Okay, I promise. I promise. I will watch it with you. Uh, we just need to finish the podcast. This is a never-ending podcast. <laughs> um, I think Amy, Amelia's mum, could play Kathy or Kathy. Kathy could Bates could play Kathy, her. Yeah. yeah. But I think she could do it because she was a badass and she didn't want to raise pretty little girls to do pretty little things and be like her neighbours. Like her mum despised the fact that she let the girls wear bloomers. And I'm kind of like, I was a shorts kind of wearing kid because all I wanted to do was climb the gate that was yeah. put up at the side of our house. That Like all the parents were like, don't climb the gate. And I'm like, no, well, now you've said it. I'm going to have yeah. to do it. Like, don't, don't press the big red button. Absolutely. Have you any other questions on that episode? Uh, no, I think, what now? Oh. What is a ground loop? So a ground loop is the, it says here, the map, oh, sorry. The rapid circulation rotation of an aircraft in a horizontal plane while on the ground. So it's basically when the plane just gets whipped out. Okay. Um, I know exactly what you mean now. What she thought and what a lot of onlookers thought was that the front wheel had burst or she thought that maybe the front wheel had collapsed. Yeah. Um, And a lot of onlookers thought the same thing as well. Because one of the wingtips to swing around, not necessarily the hallway, but swing around. I experienced one of them on a hang glider. Really? I clipped the wingtip on landing on a mm. fence. The blue bushes. Oh, no. And the right wing caught because I was too close to the fence on landing. And the left wing came the whole way around. And I came to an abrupt stop with the nose of the glider in the ground and my face. In I was going to say, eventually your, yeah. essentially your face would be and, down. And to my absolute delight... A good friend of mine caught it on camera, and every year sends, sends, resends it to me. I've never seen this. Who's the friend? I uh, need to know. I'll tell you later. Okay. And um, you can hear, you can see me in the in the land and in the distance, and you can hear one of the guys going, "What's he doing? He's really low. Where is he going? What's?" And then he goes, "Oh God, he's hit the t- he's hit the tree. He's spun around, and you can just hear him." Breaking his heart laughing. Yeah, the concern then, really comes through. And then somebody goes, oh, we better ring and make sure he's okay. And then they found out he's okay, and then they started laughing again. The same guy who was laughing so much in the same field overshot the field and tried to fly his glider between two trees, and the width of the two trees was narrower than the width of his wings. Who gave any of you hand gliders? So he hits, <laughs> he hits the tree. I hear a loud bang, and I'm still attached to the glider. I'm trying to unclip everything, and then I sprint, like literally, like rip. I didn't rip anything, but I undressed my harness really quick and ran. But for to dramatic the effect, you ripped it. Yeah, uh, I get it. Well, it doesn't rip easy. Wait, hang on. So was he recording you while he was no, this is a different line? day. Oh, okay. A different day. So I went running into the next field to make to see if he was all right. He managed to get through the trees and he was walking off. You know the way you'd see a hang glider walking with the, the wing resting on his back? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's walking off and everything looked normal except for about a meter oh, from no. the end of his wingtip was just drooping, <laughs> very broken. He looked like a seagull who broke its wing and he was no. just flopping away. And it was a really nice wing as well. It was devastating for him. Say your word. Okie dokie. So if you have any questions or queries on today's episode, please feel free to DM us on our Instagram. It's what's the story ghost. If you have any personal experiences that you would like to share, our email is what's the story ghost at gmail.com. And on that note, exit jingle. <laughs>
Hey, I'm gonna have to start again now. Bye. Bye.